Uh, we are in Isaiah 53 today, Isaiah 53. Just the first six verses are we going to cover. Um, last week we saw messengers riding along the ridges of the mountains. If you're in Jerusalem, it's on a mountain. It's the highest mountain in the area, and there's uh, a ridge route coming uh, from the uh, Jezreel Valley from the north to Jerusalem. There's the Shvela coming up from the uh, Mediterranean to Jerusalem. And at the top of these ridges would be the pathways that runners would run. And, uh, and, and we saw last week this, this image of the runners running towards Jerusalem, bringing good news. And you knew that they were bringing good news, and it's just a beautiful sight to see them running. Uh, we also saw the watchmen full of joy and shouting as the Lord was returning to Zion. Uh, but then we also saw some, some interesting things here about the Lord returning. Uh, look at verse 13 of chapter 52. My, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. But then in verse number 14, uh, we have this, this warning. But as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. So we, we have some very confusing symbolism here. Uh, and, and the theme, of course, of all of this section is uh, Judah has been exiled to Babylon. They've settled into new lives. It's been, it will have been 70 years when they uh, are to apply this message. And Isaiah is saying, when the time comes, you need to pick up and move. And you need to go back to Jerusalem because there's going to be good news. The Lord is going to return to Zion. And then you also have this very confusing thing. And his semblance will be so, his appearance will be so marred beyond human recognition. Just as many were astonished at you, they're going to be astonished at him. And, and so these are just prophecies that are being unfolded in 700 B.C. Uh, this is before the exile to Babylon even takes place. Uh, that, that they're saying, and then after that exile, you're going to need to return because God is going to do a great work. And the fact that this is told beforehand is very important. Turn back to chapter 45 real quick here, verse number 1. Uh, because God made a point of mentioning a name, Cyrus. And he mentions this name, Cyrus, and he said, I'm saying the name before the name exists so that you can know. Uh, look at, uh, at, at Isaiah 45, verse number 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And, and um, Cyrus would be a very Gentile name. Um, it'd be like saying to Vladimir. Uh, it, just, it would stand out to the Israelites. This, this says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. I have gone to this Gentile and I've taken his hand. I said, buddy, it's me and you. We're going to do this thing. What are we going to do? To subdue the nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him that gates be not closed. I will go before you, speaking to Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Why is this so incredible? Because this is a hundred years before even his grandpa was on the throne. And verse number four, for the sake of my servant Jacob and my chosen Israel, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. God is not hiding from the calamity in your life. He purposes it. I am the Lord who does all those things. And the fact that this was written 700 years before Jesus Christ and 100 years before Cyrus even exists, that's a big deal. And God names his name in advance so that when he appears on world stage, the world will know that God is God. As he said, I am the Lord who does these things. So what we're reading today is written 700 years before Jesus Christ. Now, there was a time when naysayers would try to get us to believe that the Jews were duped by the Christians, and the early church inserted this into their text of Isaiah. Because Isaiah 53 looks like Christian propaganda. It's the story of Jesus before Jesus even existed, 700 years before he was born. Not that he existed as God, but that he existed as man. And, and so... Um, and, and so people would have had you believe that somehow the early church got this inserted into the Jewish text. Number one, the Jews would never let that happen. Since the days of Jesus, there is such hatred of Jesus and the way that they would never let their text be so defiled. But then number two, you can go to the Israel Museum today and look at what they call the Shrine of the Book. And there is a scroll of Isaiah that carbon dates back to 300 to 130 B.C. And so carbon dating must not be able to dial in exactly because the range of dates that it produces is between 300 and 100. But the point is, over a century before Jesus Christ was born and was crucified, this text that we are reading today was written. And it just describes him. And it does it before he, was, before he existed as man, before he was born as man. Uh, it, it, it was written so that you would know, so that you would believe and the world would believe that God has said these things. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. God, as we bow before you today as a congregation, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for one another. And we pray that you would watch over this congregation, Lord. Care for those who are hurting today. There are some with special needs that would rather we not mention them, but we pray that you would be with them, that you would heal them and comfort them. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to minister to one another, to serve one another, to put each other first, and to be selfless. Uh, Father, as we consider the prophecy before us, I pray that you would build our faith that what happened in 33 AD was truly prophesied in 700 BC and nails it to the, to the letter, exactly what happened to our Savior, exactly what happened to the King of Israel the Messiah, Jesus. Lord, bless us as we study. Help us, Lord, to 
grow in our faith. And God, just as Israel needed to return to the land and do the hard work, there are hard things in front of us that we must do as well. We must love one another. We must love the lost. We must glorify you in an evil generation. We must fight against sin in our lives. And I pray that you'd equip us for this. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study here today, Isaiah questions the believability of the servant's profile in verse 1. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord uh, been revealed? Uh, Of course, this all uh, comes out of uh, uh, chapter 52, verse number 3, behold my servant. We're looking at the servant and Isaiah says, by the way, Isaiah 52, verse 14 then talks about his appearance being so marred beyond human semblance. So it's a message of rejoicing. The king is returning to Jerusalem. But it's a message of confusion because he's going to be so marred beyond human recognition. And, and so Isaiah asks this question, who has believed what he has heard from us? That, that could also be translated, who would believe this? Who would believe this? Uh, things that are so astonishing that they are hard to accept and perhaps even hard to grasp. How would the king come back to Israel and yet be so marred as to be beyond human uh, semblance? Who is the us in verse number one? Isaiah asks, uh, uh, who has believed what he has heard from us? Uh, well, there was a revelation to the coastlands in, in, in uh, chapter 52. Uh, there were the kings at the end of chapter 52 that, uh, that shut their mouths in verse 15. And, um, and, and they uh, now have heard and understand things that they had not under, previously understood. So it could be the kings. It could be uh, Isaiah and Jerusalem and Israel speaking there. But uh, it's important to pause and just to recognize that all of mankind is a bit skeptical toward the plan of God, that it is hard to grasp that there is a natural-born skepticism. In fact, there is a natural-born enmity in our hearts against God. We read a psalm at the beginning of worship today that that talked about how there is none good. Uh, No human being is inherently good. Uh, No human being inherently seeks God. Now, I remember as a young boy seeking God. But that did not arise in and of me. That was God's spirit working in me to cause that interest to pursue God. Uh, It doesn't happen naturally. It happens spiritually when the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 3, I believe it's verse 10, says there's none righteous. And it basically quotes the psalm that we read today. And so to solve mankind's problem... The Bible makes it clear that God gave his son. In John 3.16, beloved text, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Isaiah is printing a me- uh, 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 writing a message here about, about what the Messiah is going to be and do, and he wonders at its believability, uh, this great servant. And, and as we get into his, servant, his message today, far from revealing a strong arm of the Lord here, this great servant presented himself as weak, undesirable, and despised in verses 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant, that's a tender plant, and like a root out of dry ground. And so if you think about a, a root that's trying to get started, trying to grow, if it's in dry ground, that's not a hospitable environment for that young, tender plant. He had no form or majesty, so no form and no majesty that we should look at him. So there's nothing commendable to look at, and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men. And that goes back to what we read in in chapter 52, verse 14, that uh, people were astonished that he was beaten beyond human semblance. He's a man of sorrows, verse 3, acquainted with grief. And the word sorrows is the word pain. He's a man of pain uh, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. So in verse 2, he had no form or, or comeliness, the, the beauty that we should look upon him. In fact, he was such, at, 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 at least at some point, that men would just not even be able to look at the guy. The metaphor of a tender plant growing up out of dry ground speaks to the inhospitable environment in which our Lord was raised and in which he ministered as a man. He was a tender plant, which I would speak, I would, I would, I would think speaks of uh, weakness, vulnerability. He was raised in a position of poverty. He, he truly is the eternal royal king without a royal environment when he came to the earth. It could also refer to his level of outcast as a Jew. He was raised as the son of a woman who conceived him out of wedlock. Now, you and I know that it was a virgin birth conceived of by the Holy Spirit. We know this. But, but Israel and even Mary and Joseph's family members, they had no miracles. Well, there was Elizabeth. She knew. But the broader family had no miracles and message from God preached to them that would tell them, oh, yeah, Mary, her, her story, if she even shared it. I'm not even sure she even tried to share this story. Can you imagine being pregnant? And trying to tell people, well, yeah, actually, I'm still a virgin. Yeah, right. So, so uh, you know, you, you, you look at the um, level of outcast that Jesus might have faced. In fact, when you, when you read that there was no room in the inn, that word inn is the word kataluma. Kataluma uh, also not only means inn, it also means great room or upper room. So the disciples, when they met for their final Passover with Jesus, they met in the Cataluma in Jerusalem, a, a great room, an upper room in a house. So you had your house that you lived in, but if you were wealthy enough and had space, you had a Cataluma, a great room, where you would have multi-purpose functions, and, and it would be like a living room today where you would entertain people, or some of us have great rooms, kitchen, living room combined. And, and this would be that, and that's where you would house people. And so when it says there is no room in the Cataluma, there's no room in the inn is one translation, but there's no room in the great room for them. But also the verb and the subject could be interpreted this way. The, the Cataluma is no place for you. It's not that there's no place for you in the Cataluma, it's that the Cataluma is no place for you. In other words, Mary, you've got a child out of wedlock. We are devout Jews. And the stigma to have an illegitimate child in that day and age in a religious nation would have been huge. And, and so therefore, when, when there's no room for them, uh, well, it's actually could be, this is no place for you. We love you. Uh, we understand your circumstance, but here's the deal. Uh, we have a cave out underneath the house. Uh, it's a, it's a, um, uh, you know, a stable, if you will. Perhaps it was a wooden stable, but more than likely it was a, it was a cave. If you visit Bethlehem, you'll see uh, the, the, the sandstone rooms that people dug into these little hand-dug caves. Uh, we have a place for you. It'll be warm. We will do it up for you, and, and you, you can at least be out there, but we just can't have this in our house. 
Such would be the stigma of being an illegitimate child in a religious nation like Israel. In fact, I always wonder in John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and I wonder how, how far into his life this status as an illegitimate child went. Um, now, they could just be talking metaphorically uh, as they say this to Jesus, but I almost wonder if they aren't turning the screws and twisting a knife in his back when they say this. In John chapter 8, verse 18, he said, I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Now, that could be a philosophical discussion that they're having about Jesus' identity with God the Father. Or it could be a dig. Yeah, a legitimate guy. Uh, Where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And in chapter 8 of John, this conversation continued, and uh, he is calling them um, uh, the, uh, the, the children of Satan, basically. And he said, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. So again, they could be using some nice metaphorical, philosophical language. We were not born of sexual immorality. Or they could be referencing the, the, um, the stink around his birth, the, uh, the, the, the scuttlebutt around his birth. Three comments about his form in Isaiah chapter 53 tell us that his form was undesirable. There's, in other words, there's nothing to be desired, and perhaps it was even undesirable in the most negative senses. We see in verse number two, he had no form. In other words, there's nothing impressive, nothing commendable to his appearance, uh, either in circumstance or in visual characteristics, where, who, where he was born, who his parents were, what he looked like. There was just no form. It says there was no majesty in verse number two. There was nothing regal about him in his birth. He wasn't born to a family that was actively in royalty. Uh, Joseph is of the household of Judah, but uh, there is nothing uh, regal about uh, his birth family. And there was nothing regal about Jesus, I would take that as well. You remember King Saul? He was head and shoulders above all the other men of Israel. And, and even when, um, when um, uh, was it uh, Samuel the prophet who went to Jesse to look at his sons, and he saw one of the sons, oh, Look at this guy. He is a man's man. Surely he must be the one. And I believe he was the eldest son of Jesse. There was just something regal about him. And, and uh, in that case, no. But, but for, King, for Jesus, there's nothing regal about him. You would not have looked at him and said, man, that guy would make a really great king. No. There was nothing majestic about his appearance. And this is kind of harsh, but it says there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. His appearance as a man was either quite normal or perhaps even aesthetically unattractive. Now, contrast that with King David, who is young, ruddy, and beautiful. I believe the Bible uses the term beautiful to describe David. Now, if you're a man and somebody describes you as beautiful, that's something, okay? Um, (laughs) David was something, but to Jesus, there is no beauty. Uh, So there was nothing, when you saw Jesus speak, there was nothing where you just wanted to look into his eyes. And just found him captivating. He had none of those advantages. Now, as you follow Jesus, the Son of God throughout all of eternity, God the Son, second person of the Godhead, he created everything. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. 
So Jesus made the most beautiful man in history and the most beautiful woman in history, Adam and Eve. And he set up the DNA structure and, and sovereignly, I believe, controls the DNA construction uh, 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 so, that, so that the most beautiful man alive today was made by him. The most beautiful woman alive today was made by this Jesus. And now it is time for him to become human, for him to take on human form. He has the power to make a form for himself that is stunning, that people would talk about just for his look. We talk about Absalom's hair to this day. I mean, there could have been stunning things about King Jesus. And yet he availed himself to none of the advantages that physical beauty believes. If I am taking verse number two correctly here, he availed himself to none of those things, the, 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 the uh, muscularity or the, the uh, facial beauty or the, the beauty of his hair. None of that is commendable. From a human standpoint, he could have born, been born in a rich family. There's, there, there's nothing that would make him not the son of God if he had been born in a rich family, in a, in a prosperous era like this century. But he chose a poor family. He could have been born in a royal family that was actively exercising royalty with all of its privileges. He was not. This same Jesus calls you to a life of self-sacrifice. He calls you to a life of humility. He calls you to forsake selfish ambition. And, you know, even in churches, you can have selfish ambition. You can have desires that really at the core are selfish, such as wanting the preeminence, wanting to be up here, running your mouth, <laughs> wanting to be up here singing. Um, we need people to be up here preaching, teaching. We need people to sing. But, but there's a very careful uh, sin you need to guard against, and that would be selfish ambition, wanting to be the one up front or the one in charge or the one people serve. Uh, Romans 12.10 says, let one another, or love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So uh, as, as opposed to being selfishly ambitious, Jesus calls you to a life of outdoing the other people in this room and showing the other people in this room honor. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, uh, draw that, 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 that uh, comparison more closely so that you know that you are to imitate Jesus precisely in the way he went from just being God to not only being God, but now being creature, being man. And not just being creature and man, but being a man who was uncomely, uh, unbeautiful, unpowerful, he humbled himself, and Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, teaches you that that is your model. That is what you are to follow. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here comes the example. Who, though he was in the form of God, it did not count equality God with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So the example is there in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, that we are to forsake selfish ambition, conceit, which is just having a high opinion about yourself, and instead we're to be humble and count others better than us and look to their interests because this is what Jesus did. And in this sense, he is an example to every believer today. Humble yourself. Lose the selfish ambition. Churches with people clamoring to be in this or that position. Lose the conceit. I also think that we want to be very careful about Christian celebrity. That's a bit of an oxymoron, Christian celebrity. You do not want to become a Christian celebrity uh, because the things that you have to do to become a celebrity seem to run counter to this idea of humbling yourself and simply serving others. Now, there are some names we know in the kingdom that have become great names, uh, people who have served God in commendable ways, and they just became known because of it. That happens, and, and when that happens, that happens. See, like the Apostle Paul, I don't think Paul set out uh, from Tarsus saying, okay, I want to build a big ministry and, you know, I want to have all these churches throughout all these areas reporting back to me. And I want to, you know, no, I think Paul went to, he wanted to take the gospel to all of these communities. And when he was in a community, he was there. And he served in humility. In fact, he went and endured beatings and imprisonments. And it could have been over for him at any point the way he ministered. It really wasn't a good plan to build celebrity, to build a following of Paul. Now, as God used him, church to church, ministering where God had him, that yielded fruit. And it yielded, you know, global fruit as far as his worldview at that time. But it was not that Paul went out and saying, oh, I want to build a global ministry. His heart was to take the gospel where Christ had not been named. And God, get me to this town and I'll plant churches and then I will set them loose to serve you. Autonomous local churches with elders. For Jesus Christ, there were some big events, feeding of 5,000, feeding of 4,000. There were some big events. But even those events did not yield a big following, a big celebrity status. In fact, Jesus' life ended with him dying in rejection. And so it seems like God has not chosen celebrity, concerts, and conferences to build his kingdom. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, biblically, when he says, I will build my church... He's talking about the universal church, but how does that manifest itself in the Bible? Through individual congregations. There are millions of congregations today. I googled the number of denominations, and, and between 35,000 and 56,000 denominations exist in our world today, if you can believe that. Millions of independent local churches have already met. Most of the world, Sunday morning's over. You know, we're kind of late in the day. All right, but, um, but millions have already met, millions yet will meet, and all of them are full of Christians, and all of them have pastors and elders. What are their names? Of the millions have met, what are the names of the pastors? You don't know, because it doesn't matter. They serve in anonymity. They are men serving where God planted them, serving as elders, and this would seem to be the model of Christian service that God has. Not conferences, not concerts. Not celebrity, but local churches with anonymous people holding up one name that today has been honored in millions of churches, the name of Jesus Christ. 
and so should it be. That only happens as we obey God, forsake selfish ambition, and serve. Verse number three says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Would you turn with me to John 19? I think it would just be appropriate. Sometimes in churches we don't read enough scripture. I want to read an extended passage just that links to the prophecies we're reading today. He was despised. He was rejected. He was pierced. And, and so let's go to the scene of the cross 730 years later. Then, I mean, uh, John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they arrayed him in, pur- in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns. And the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his quarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. 
And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished, uh, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, a religious day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. God's servant, Jesus, was punished by God in order to carry our griefs and remove our sins. Verses 4 and 5 of, of uh, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds... We are healed. This is one of these Old Testament passages that begins to make sense of the sacrificial system. All these animals dying in the Old Testament. Why were they dying? God sacrificed the first animals to make clothing for Adam and Eve. But then we see with their sons, Cain and Abel, they are immediately offering sacrifices. We don't have any revelation as to what instructions were given to them. But it does seem that one man's sacrifices, Abel's, were correct. And the other man, Cain's, were incorrect sacrifices, and he was admonished to bring a correct sacrifice. So there were some guidelines even given to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel as to the fact that they should offer sacrifices and that sacrifices should be this way or that way. Anytime you read modern uh, biblical historical books that say, well, you know, actually Israel borrowed their sacrificial system from all these pagan religions, that, you know, the pagan religions offered these fertility offerings, and Israel just kind of adopted this into their worship of Yahweh. No. The first man and the first woman were introduced to sacrifices. Their sons offered a good sacrifice and a bad sacrifice. And the fact is, Satan is the author of confusion. Satan is the one who takes the pure sacrificial system and perverts it. So we want to be very careful that we do not believe the lie that uh, Israel borrowed their sacrificial system from others. We stick to the word of God and we understand that the sacrificial system began with God and it foreshadowed something. It foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ. We later see the book of Job. In fact, um, Job is later than Adam and Eve, but it's probably the first book of the Bible. Uh, Job predates the law of Moses because uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, his age matches the age of Abraham, not Moses. Uh, the age when you go from Methuselah and, and Adam, as you go through those centuries after the flood, you see the age of man dropping down to 200 and something years for Abraham. 
Job lived a similar lifespan to Abraham. He seems to be a contemporary with Abraham, either just before, just after, maybe a contemporary. Also, when he is arguing for his righteousness, he never mentions the Torah. When his friends accuse him of unrighteousness, they never mention the Torah. I'm understanding Job to have existed uh, centuries, at least four centuries before the Torah, before Moses wrote the Torah. And yet, what do we find in Job chapter 1, verse number 5? We find this man, Job, hosting a feast and offering offerings for his children. Uh, for Job says, said in, uh, in Job 1, 5, it may be that my children have sinned. He is offering a sacrifice because it may be that my children have sinned. So here we have Job off, uh, operating in a priestly function for his family, for his children's sins. Why were animals dying and did they really take away sins? Hebrews 10 makes this clear to us. The sacrifices were a shadow of Christ and no, they did not take away sins. They looked forward by faith to the one who would. Listen to Hebrews 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let's just repeat that. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Dropping down to verse number 11, and every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. Sin forgiven through one man making one sacrifice himself. And here in Isaiah 53, we see that that sacrifice for sin is the exact purpose of God's servants. Do you see that? It says, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows in verse 4. And then in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. The word transgression refers to property offenses, criminal actions, misdemeanor, wantonness. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's the general word sin. Upon him was the chastisement. The punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Christ is a substitute sacrifice for you. He was your substitute in taking your punishment for himself. He bears your punishment. He removes your sin. He gives you the gift of his righteousness. As I understand the economy of God's justice, this will do. You do not have to be perfect to enter God's presence. Uh, that yes, in God's economy of justice, your sin has made you eternally guilty, worthy of eternal damnation. But in his justice, there is provision for a substitute. Now, can I go out and die for your sins? No, I cannot. That would be of no, I, I could intend to. I could intend to sacrifice myself for your sins. Moses mentioned doing it for Israel. Paul, I believe, for his people Israel as well, could wish himself to be accursed. But in fact, that would not avail. That would not do. There is one sacrifice that would do, the God-man Jesus Christ, the great servant of whom Isaiah speaks. 
He prayed three times if there was any other way. Could an angel take his place? I mean, angels would do God's bidding at a heartbeat. They're perfect. They're obedient. That would not do. Only deity who becomes man, our representative, one of us to represent us in his suffering and in his righteousness and obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God purposely made Jesus Christ to be sin for us. This was God's plan. And it was announced 730 years before Jesus did the deed. Before he died for our sins, it was announced he would be pierced for our transgressions. We would esteem him stricken by God. Truly he was on our behalf. Mankind is universally sinful and God has placed all this guilt on the servant in verse number 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The book of Isaiah has represented the term servant at times applying to Israel, at times applying, referring to the prophet Isaiah. But here, it's not Israel or Isaiah. Because Isaiah is speaking and he says, all we have gone astray. We've all turned and on him. This one individual, on him, God has laid the iniquity of us all. We all have this in common. We're sinners. We come through this door understanding something about each other, that there are things in our mind we don't like about ourselves. We're right. You need to be serious about sanctification as a Christian. You need to be serious about allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life and give you victory over sin. Sin will not treat you well if you embrace it. Satan loves to destroy his children. He just delights in ruining their lives. And you need to be serious about your sin. But you also need to be clear of this. Uh, It is not through the putting off of sin and becoming perfect that you become a Christian, that you become right with God. You become right with God through trusting his Savior, Jesus Christ, his son, Jesus. He laid all of our iniquities on Jesus. John 1.12 says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. To all who received him, what's that mean? The parallel is stated there, who believed on his name. The way you become a Christian, the way you become right with God is by believing on Jesus Christ. Yes, that's an act of repentance. It's an act of turning from sin. It's not an act of becoming perfect. It's not an act of earning your way. Putting off sin is an act of worship. It's agreeing with God, and it's in your best interest in every way possible. So God's servant comes in humility. He takes all our grief. He takes our sin on himself. What we have here in Isaiah 53 is the gospel, the Messiah dying for our sins. You and I know how that gets applied to us. It gets applied to us by faith in Jesus. How did it get applied to them? Have you ever seen those Old Testament statements, circumcise your heart? How do you circumcise a heart? Well, physically you don't. It's an act of belief. Uh, Let God take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, This is a faith act. And if you look in, in chapter 55, just look ahead here. We'll be here in a few weeks. But just look at this call to faith in chapter 55, verse 1. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So the invitation to faith is, is in these words, come, eat without money, without labor, come. Just let God provide for you. Look at chapter 55, verse number 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. There is repentance even in the Old Testament gospel. There is re- Let the wicked forsake his way. And the un- unrighteous man, his thoughts. That's stunning that we need, to re- we need to forsake even our thoughts. Do you have a problem in your thought life? Because I sure do. I sure do. I wouldn't want you to know the thoughts of this heart and the thoughts of this mind. And let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It doesn't say that he is the accountant who says, okay, yeah, you've got enough good works. Let's make the transaction. No, this is a pardon. You come to God forsaking your sin, trusting Christ, trusting the Messiah, and God pardons you. So have you trusted Jesus Christ? Have you trusted this Messiah? Has God pardoned you of your sin? It's a call to forsake your evil works. It's a call to forsake your evil thinking. And it's a call to come to God and just trust Him for salvation. Have you done that? If you have not, you need to do that today. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We have this moment You need to take this moment and evaluate that sin is worthy to be shunned. It's worthy to turn away from your sin. And that Jesus Christ the Messiah is worthy to be trusted. He took your sin upon himself. He took your suffering upon himself. This is God's gift to you. And all who believe on his name have the right to become the children of God in Jesus Christ. Have you trusted him? Let's bow for a word of silent prayer and then close us in a word of prayer. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'd invite you right now to turn from your sin, tell God you know you're a sinner, forsake that sin, and come to Jesus Christ trusting him. Tell God you trust his son Jesus to take the burden of your sins off of you and to give you eternal life. Let's pray for just a moment, and then I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we approach you. You are holy. And we are a room full of people who've played around with sins, various sins, and many times gotten burned and embarrassed by our sins. We've had the consequence of our sins revisited upon us. And God, we know enough, even experientially, to know that sin does not pay in the end, that it it is an embarrassment for a reason. And God, we also know that sin works death into this world. There are relationships today that are dead because of sin. 
Father, there are hearts that are dead because of sin, that can't even process good, right from wrong, because of sin. And Lord, your word tells us that because of sin, there is disease and death and hardship in this life. And God, we see it, we experience it, we hate it. But Father, we do not blame you. We would say that you are right and righteous, that you warned mankind in the Garden of Eden that sin would bring a curse of death the day we disobeyed you. And so here we are. And Father, your word also tells us that sin works eternal death, that there is a hell. And that once we enter hell, there is no rest day or night. There is no going to sleep and be waking up refreshed the next day to endure another day as there is in this life. Uh, that, Father, it is eternal misery without a break, without rest. And that, Father, this is good and righteous for all sin is ultimately against you and you are perfect, holy, and infinite in your being. The slightest Slight of your name, Father, is worthy of eternity in hell. Father, these things are all true. And in the midst of all of this, you are loving and merciful, and you gave your son Jesus to die for our sins. You placed all of our sin upon him. You made him to be sin for us. He's God, he's man now, and he's sin as well on the cross. Enduring the shame and despising it, discounting the shame for the glory that was set before him. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done on the cross. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your love and obedience to us. You loved us in obedience and love for your father. You obeyed his will. And the two of you are surely one. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. I pray that everybody who understands the gospel today understands that these things were written 700 years before they happened. And to the T, you have fulfilled them. Why? Because you're God and you wanted us to know. Why? Because you wanted us to be built up in our faith. So God, I pray that you would do that today, that every believer here would grow in faith, and that if anyone was lost, that they are now trusting Christ as Savior and have new birth and new life in Jesus. Thank you in his name. Amen. This time I'm going to ask Ben to come and lead us.